So James chapter 1, there is the great commission found in the book of Matthew chapter 28. And we know what most of the great commission is. We know it says, go make disciples, right? That's typically what we think of when we think of the great commission. But Jesus actually continues on from that statement of go and make disciples. Jesus says, go and make disciples, teaching them, you know, baptizing them, but also teaching them all that I've commanded you. So part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, part of following Jesus, following his way, is also this idea of learning from Jesus. So one of the things that we need to do is we need to be teachable disciples. Being a disciple of Christ is following his way. So there, there, is, there is a new show that's on out there uh, called The Mandalorian. Are y'all familiar with this? I'm surprised it's been this long since this has become an illustration. And I know probably y'all are very sad that it's a picture of Mando and, and not Baby Yoda. Um, but there's this, there's this phrase that the Mandalorian says all the time. And people in this community say all the time. Do y'all know what it is? Maybe y'all know it. All right, this is the way. So apparently there's this, and, and I'm not uh, like a Star Wars fanatic, but I, I know a little bit. Uh, but apparently the Mandalorians are this warrior race of people, uh, and they have this code that they live by. And whenever they are in their community, uh, whenever they are doing something that's a part of their community, part of their rituals, one of the things that they say is they say, this is the way. Uh, I'm not sure if you realize this, but whenever Christianity first was established, Christians weren't known as Christians. They were known as followers of the way. Paul, whenever he was in front of Felix defending the faith in Acts chapter 24, he said, I am a follower of the way. What Paul was saying and what what that meant is that there is a way to follow Jesus. And there is a way not to follow Jesus. In fact, we think of Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, wide is the gate. And easy is the way that leads to destruction. But small or narrow is the gate. And difficult or small is the way to follow Jesus. There is a way that we are supposed to live. There's a way that we are supposed to learn as we follow Jesus. So our text today in James chapter 1 verses 19 through 27 answers three questions about this way. It answers the question, what are we to be? Where are we to look and what are we to do? So there's a, those are the three questions we're answering in our text. What are we to be? Where are we to look? What are we to do? Let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. At James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. 
but the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks he is a religious person without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you can go ahead and have a seat. That first question that we are wanting to answer is what are we to be? If we want to follow Jesus, how are we supposed to be this this teachable disciple. So what are we to be? I think he begins in our passage by telling us that we need to be a holy and a humble people. I think oftentimes when we start thinking about speaking in in our tongue and how we engage with other people, oftentimes we think, well, we we want to be assertive people. And the way that we assert ourselves is through our words. Uh, It's funny, right now we have our, our basketball team at the YMCA. I'm coaching my son's team Jason is coaching uh, another team, Michael's team, that's right. Uh, in fact, we play the first game of the season, so I think we're going to destroy them. But one of the things, whenever you're teaching these, these kids about basketball, you almost have to teach them how to be assertive. Because, I mean, some of them, not all of them. Uh, they're so used to being told all these things growing up, like, well, you need a chair, and you don't want to be physical with other people. And so then you get out there on the basketball court, and you're like, one of the first things I have to do in my lessons with these students is I have to say, all right, you know whose ball this is. This is your ball. If he has this ball, he has your ball. Don't share. I want you to just take it from him. And so we almost have to retrain them on how to be assertive. And so we think being assertive is this good and glorious thing. And sometimes it is. But oftentimes, the way that we assert ourselves as adults is through our words. And our words will get us in a world of trouble. We're going to talk more about this in a few weeks when we get to James chapter 3. You're probably reading it in your discipleship groups here pretty soon. But he says the tongue is, is, is like the spark that starts a wildfire. And so James here is telling us that we need to be humble people so that we can be teachable disciples of Jesus Christ. And he says this, he says, whenever, whenever we are engaging with one another in the community of Christ, and we're engaging with the world, we need to be able to hold our tongues. The Jewish rabbis used to say this, men have two ears but one tongue, that they should hear more than they speak. The ears are always open, ever ready to receive instruction, but the tongue is surrounded with a double row of teeth to hedge it in, and to keep it within its proper bounds. Wow. I think the common way that we say that is we have two ears and one mouth, so we should listen twice as much as we speak. Jesus and James, through the word of God, is telling us the same thing, that everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19 says that when there are many words, sin is unavoidable. But the one who controls his lips is prudent. Why is there so much emphasis in the Bible on our words? I think it's because of what Jesus said. 
Jesus told us in his ministry that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. That whatever is within you, if it is rage, if it is envy, if it's jealousy, whatever is within you is eventually going to be coming out of your mouth. Whereas if you are full of peace and grace and compassion and mercy, and that's what's in your heart, then that's what's going to come out of your mouth. James is telling us that if we want to be a a teachable disciple of Jesus Christ, then we need to hold our tongue. So this is my question for you. How are you with your words? How are you with your words? I know in my past I've been told that, Stephen, sometimes you use your words as weapons. Man, that cuts to the bone. It's something that I had to repent of. To use my words to harm, to hurt, is not acceptable. So how are you with your words? Do you use them as a weapon? Are your words full of complaining or gossiping or shaming other people for their actions? And I think oftentimes we find ourselves, we're justifying the words that we say. That whenever we know we might have gone too far with our words, we begin to say things like, well, if they hadn't enough. If they hadn't have done this, if they hadn't have said this, if this wasn't their behavior, then I would have said those things. And we begin, we begin to basically place our actions on other people. And we blame them for the words that we say. Or I used to say this a lot when I was growing up, when I'd say something mean. Oh, I'm just joking. You ever do that? You say something kind of off, something kind of cruel. Don't worry, I'm just joking. Like that, that, that heals all right? So we justify what we say by, by blaming it on other people or saying that we're only joking or we'll say things along the lines of, well, you know, they'll get over it. They're just too sensitive. They, they, they just need to toughen up some. Or we, we justify our words by saying things like, well, I'm just a frank person. I'm blunt. I say what's on my mind. That's a good quality. What James is telling us is that our words will condemn us. Jesus said every careless word that we speak that we will be held accountable for. And if we want to be moldable, teachable disciples of Jesus Christ, he's telling us in James chapter 1 that we need to be quick to listen and we need to be slow to speak. Not only are we to be slow to speak, but he tells us in verse 19 that we're supposed to be slow to anger. And I think James realized the connection between our words, and and our emotions that we have. That's what Jesus was talking about. Uh, The overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. But he's telling us that disciples of Jesus Christ, not only should we learn to hold our tongues, but we also need to learn to hold our anger. We need to hold our temper. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 11. I don't know if you've realized this about James, but James really leans heavily on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and he really leans heavily on on the Proverbs. So as you're studying this in your discipleship group, that's one of the things that that you're going to notice time and time again. Echoes of Jesus and echoes of the Proverbs. But Proverbs 29.11 says, A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise person holds it in check. Listen to what he says here in verse 20. He says, For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. What is James telling us? He is saying that if we are angry people, that 
our temper and our anger is always getting a hold of us and is always overcoming us. He is saying that we are not displaying the righteousness of Christ. He is saying that God is calling us to be righteous people and we cannot at the same time be righteous people who God is calling us to be and at the same time angry people. I think in our community we have both of these issues are hard for us, right? This idea that we need to hold our tongues, we need to be watchful of our tongues, and at the same time we have to hold anger in check. I just want to say, guys, without Jesus in us, without us always surrendering to him, without us always repenting of those particular sins, they're going to dominate us. And many of the experiences that we have had in our lives, we find ourselves surrounded in these contexts where our words are always about complaint and always foul and always coarse. And at the same time, where anger is almost a value. And James is calling us saying, no, that is not the way of Jesus. So you're saying, all right. Well, Stephen, you just, you just dumped a whole pile of guilt on me. What do I do? You do what Christians do. You do what Jesus has called us to do. You repent and you turn away from your sin. You acknowledge it. You confess it. And you say, this is who I am and this is where I am. And this is not what I want. And you try to follow Jesus. And you think, man, is it that simple? Yes and no. Yes, it's that simple. And yes, you will do that time and time again because you will find yourself continually falling. But that is what God is calling us to do. And as we are recognizing that in ourselves and as we continue to repent of it and confess it, what we will find is over time, Christ giving us more and more freedom over that issue. It's going to be a long and hard battle It's going to feel uphill. But if we want to be teachable, if we want to be teachable disciples, we have to first acknowledge that we need to be taught. Wouldn't that be ironic? If someone came in saying, I want to learn, I want to be taught, but then you walk away and act like you just know it all. Have you ever known people like that? They, they act like they know it all. That's not what Christ is calling us to. He's calling us to repentance. He's calling us to be teachable people. What sparks your anger? What is the source of your anger? It very well might be that the source of your anger and what really sets it off is this idea that people aren't respecting you. And that if you're not getting the respect that you feel you deserve, then that's going to set you off. It might be that the desires that you have aren't being met. And when your desires aren't met, it sparks that anger. And that anger then comes out in our words and is hurtful to people. Christ is calling us to repent. He is calling us not only to repent, but he's calling us to be a holy people. To be a disciple of Jesus is not only to be a humble learner, but it's also to be a holy learner. Look at what he says in, in verse 24, or I mean, I'm sorry, verse 21, he says, therefore, he says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. 
then verse 20, 21, he says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So the, the disciple of Jesus, the teachable disciple of Jesus, not only are they, are they trying to hold their tongue and not only are they trying to hold their anger and not only are they trying to listen more to be teachable, but they're also trying to live a life of purity. And we're going to talk more about this as, as we go into verses 22 through, through 25. But he says, the world we live in is a world that is marked moral filth and evil. He says it's prevalent. It's all around us. So that when you go into the world and you go into your context is where you spend most of your days and most of your time, what you're going to find surrounding you oftentimes is going to be what he describes in verse 21. Moral filth and evil that is so prevalent. And what he is saying is that the follower of Christ, the follower of the way, is always going to be trying to put that off of themselves. What is the the common moral filth and evil in our day? They typically have to deal with three things. Money, sex, and power. Right? Money, sex, and power. Money, we want to accrue as much as we can for the sake of our security. We want to accrue as much money as we can for the sake of, of, of the station in life. And Christ is saying, if you are my disciple... You need to be more open-handed with what you have. You have to be generous with what you have because it's not actually yours. It's mine. With sex, oftentimes we say, well, to be free, we have to fully express our desires and we have to have them met or else I'm restricted and I'm confined and that's not a good place to be. I need to be able to express myself. And the way of Jesus is saying, listen, the way to express sexuality is within the context of of marriage with one husband and one wife, and there is beauty there. And there is goodness there that needs to be honored. And this idea of, of power and position and station, the world says that whenever you have power and authority, you're supposed to lord it over people. But Jesus said, if you're my disciple, if you're following my way, then you need to be a servant of all people. You have to realize, and I have to realize, that when we came to Jesus, this description of moral filth and evil, that's us. Apart from Jesus, that is us. And he's saying, if we are going to be a follower of Jesus, a follower of the way, then what we need to continually do is continually put off that old man, put off that old self, put off that sinful flesh, and then put on the Spirit, put on the new man. And he gives us a little bit of an indication of how we do that, beginning in verses 22 through 25. So what are disciples to be, to be a teachable disciple? Well, we need to be humble and we need to be holy. We need to strive for those things. We also need to be people who are looking at the book. Let's look at verses 22 through 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom. Listen to that. 
the law of freedom. Perseveres in it. Is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works. This person will be blessed in what he does. We are told that if we are to be a teachable disciple of Jesus Christ, we need to know where to look. Where do we look to find the way of Jesus? And the place we look to learn the way is to the Word of God. He describes the Word of God like a mirror. I don't know, I don't know if you know this about typical mirrors, unless you're in like a, was it a big house. No, that's a prison. If you're in a fun house, that's where they're all wobbly, right? <laughs> Two different places, but a lot of similarities. All right, so, but, but mirrors don't lie. Do they? Mirrors tell us the truth. If I have something stuck in my teeth and I go look in a mirror and I smile at myself, the mirror's going to show me that piece of pepper in my teeth. They don't lie. And so when we look at the Word of God and we say, Heavenly Father, I want this Word to be a mirror in my life. I want it to show me who I am. You know what the Word of God does? It shows you who you are. It shows you that brokenness you have. It shows you the moral filth. It shows you the evil that you need to put off. But you know what it also shows you if you're in Christ Jesus? It also shows you the mercy you have in Christ. And the position you have as sons and daughters of the King. The Word of God is a mirror that reflects truth, that reflects reality of who we are both the evil of our sin, but also the goodness of who we are in Jesus. In the first century, mirrors weren't like the mirrors we have today. Our mirrors today are very clear. Uh, in the first century, mirrors were essentially like polished metal. Uh, so imagine like you walk up to your car, which isn't metal anymore, but you walk up to your car and you see your reflection that's kind of dim. But if you really stare intently at it, you can kind of see the reflection. That's, that's what mirrors were in the first century. That's why it says in James that you have to look intently at the mirror. You have to gaze hard into it in order to see all the elements that are there. So James is saying that when we come to the word of God, we don't just treat it flippantly and say, well, got my check. I read my Bible. Now I'm done. He says that when we go to the word of God, we have to look at the word of God intently. We have to gaze into it so that it has its full effect. Because we have this danger where if we're not looking intently into this word, we have this danger where, where we're always looking, but we're never doing. We have this danger where we're always learning the trivia and the facts, but we're never applying. We have this danger of, of, always, of always prepping, but never executing. So we have to look intently at the word, saying, how can it be applied and how can it, how can it teach us? And look at what it says about the word of God. This, I, think, I think this is absolutely beautiful. Verse 25, how should we understand this word of God? It says, but the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it shall be not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works. The person will be blessed in what he does. Listen to what it says about the word of God. He calls it the law that gives freedom. Is that typically how people consider the laws of God? 
that laws and God's moral standards give freedom. Most of what I hear in our culture, in our society, and in conversations is we think, man, if I need freedom, if I want freedom, then I have to have no boundaries. I have to be able to do what I want, when I want, and if I have that context, then I have freedom. But what James is saying is that if we want freedom, you know what we need? We need the law of God. And that freedom is found within the confines, within the way of the law of God. I want you to think about the train. We looked at the train for a different illustration the other day. Does a train have freedom? Well, I don't know. It's got these two very rigid rails that are narrow. And it stays on those rails. But on those rails, it can move forward to where it needs to go. Is that freedom? I mean, people on the car... That's a, that's a passenger train. So people on the car, they're sitting there. They're having conversations. They're engaging with one another. There's blessedness there. There's happiness there. But if we said, you know what? Those rails are just holding me back from my freedom. That narrow way that I have to stay on that path, I can't do what I want to do, and I can't go where I want to go. So what happens when a train leaves those rails. You, you, you end up derailed. You end up in a train wreck. The way of God is narrow. The way of God can be hard. But the way of God gives us freedom. Freedom. To live life to the best extent it can be lived. And not only that, if it said that if we do this, it says we will be blessed. You know what blessed means in the Bible? It means happy. You cannot be happy in this life unless you are on the narrow way that God prescribed for us. You think of it this way. Think, think about it in, in the idea of, of marriage. Marriage one man, one woman for life. That's pretty narrow. But on that narrow path, if a husband and wife, they remain faithful to one another, they are giving to one another, that they are striving for Christ together, you know what they will have? Blessedness. Happiness. But it's whenever we say, you know what? I want freedom. And we leave the narrow confines of what God has called us to do that we end up in a train wreck. And we end up derailed on our life. Trying to sort out the pieces. The word of God is a, is a, is a narrow way. It's a hard way. I'm not going to lie to you. It's a hard way to live life. But on this way is blessedness. Are you looking at the book? And I, I want to challenge you that if you do not have a plan on how you want to read the Bible, I, I want to reiterate, man, find a plan. 
It might be, say, I'm going to read this book, and when I finish this book, I'm going to choose another book, or I'm going to, I'm going to find a Bible reading plan on my phone that, that's topical, and I'm going to look at these topics in Scripture. But I, I don't care what your plan is, but, but have a plan. I want you to imagine the person who says, man, I want to be retired by the time I'm 35, right? You probably know guys like that. I, I want to be retired by the time I'm 35. I failed, um, but that's all right. I want to be retired by the time I'm 35. And you go to that person and you say, all right, well, what's your plan? How are you going to get there? And they say, well, I don't have a plan. I, I just want it to happen. You, you kind of pity the guy, right? But it's not going to happen. You cannot reach that goal without a plan. And we cannot be teachable learners and teachable disciples of Jesus Christ without a plan on how we are going to attack and devour and look intently into the word of God. So do you have a plan? Second question I want to ask you is, who are you reading with? The Christian church is a community that knows one another. And so you need to be reading the Bible, maybe not in the same room at the same time with people, but you need to be able to be engaging with other people about what you are reading. It's how, it's how God sharpens us. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens one another. We need to be engaging with one another in the Word of God. The way we organize this and facilitate this in our church is through community groups and discipleship groups. Neil was the one up here doing everything else in the service, uh, except for singing. Um, nah, you sound good. You sound good. Um, but, but it's just, a, yeah, just kidding. <laughs> so, reminds me, last, last Sunday, I went off script, I went off notes, and I started giving this illustration about how much I hate my neighbor's dog. Uh, and then my neighbor, who doesn't go to church here, actually listened to the sermon. <laughs> Commented on Facebook. Thankfully, we, we love each other. Our families get along great. But it's like, oh my gosh. Whew, the word of God can fix. <laughs> so, what is your plan? Who are you reading with? Community group. That's where I was. Join a community group. Talk to Neil. <laughs> derailed. All right, talk, talk with Neil about community groups. Get plugged in. Learn about our discipleship groups, but be in community, engaging with the Word of God. And not only that, when you read the text, when you read the Bible, you always need to say, what is the Word of God calling me to do today? How can I apply this today? How is this convicting me of my sin Right now, what do I need to repent of? But we need to allow the word of God to enter into our lives where we are at the moment and, and be affected by it. All right. All right, so this is what we want to do. Our, our last point here. Whew. We need to be disciples of Jesus on that way. Not only do we need to be people who look at the book, but we also need to be people who worship with our walk. So this is what we want to do. I'm, I'm going to... Jump down to verse 27. Uh, I'll go ahead and read 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, religion is useless and he deceives himself. 
pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being unstained from the world. We need to be worshipers who live out this walk that we need to, to, to be applying the truths of Scripture in our lives. And he gives us a litmus test. If you're wondering, man, is, is my walk real? He gives us a litmus test. Y'all, y'all ever do a litmus test in school? It's like the easiest and the, the, the most basic of science experiments. It's where you have a liquid, and you don't know if it's an acid or a base, and you get this little piece of paper. Our, I think ours were blue. Y'all remember this? And then you dip the paper, this litmus paper, in the liquid, and it turns red or it stays blue, telling you if the liquid is an acid or a base. I asked my wife last night, I was like, did you do litmus test? She's like, yeah, it's basic. I said, were they ever hard? Were they ever inconclusive? She's like, no, that's the nature of a litmus test. It's very simple, very straightforward. It tells you yes or no. Here he gives us a litmus test. What is the litmus test for following after Christ? He says, if anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. We talked about earlier the importance of the words that come out of our mouth. This verse, verse 26, should shake us to the core. And say, am I real? Am I truly following Christ? And then he continues on with letting us know whether we are involved in doing true religion, true worship. What does he say? He says, he says true, pure, and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being unstained from the world. Think about it this way. Who were the widows and orphans? Widows and orphans in the first century were people who were the most vulnerable. They had no one to protect them. They had no one to look after them. They had no one to to provide for them. They were extremely vulnerable. Notice James just didn't say the poor, because that's typically where, where we go today. Well, who's poor? And we think, well, that's who, that's who James is talking about. He's, he's not even talking about the poor. They were surrounded with poor. We're going to be talking about that next week. But he's talking about people who are vulnerable. He says, are you taking care of people who, who are vulnerable? And I was thinking about this, how, how hard it is for us to grasp this and, and understand it today. I want you to think about this. The vulnerable people today, oftentimes what they need is they they need to be taken care of. They need security. They need safety. And I was talking to my students at school the other day. We're we're in a class on worldview. And I said, I want you to think about uh, the hospitals in our area. How many of our hospitals have Christian roots? Baylor, Scott, and White. It's a Baptist hospital. Hillcrest up in Waco, Baptist hospital. Advent Health, Seventh-day Adventist Hospital, Seton Hospital, the Catholic Hospital. One of, the, one of the only hospitals in our area that doesn't have Christian roots is a VA. Think about schools and education, trying to better people's lives through learning. The different institutions, you have Baylor and Waco, you have Mary Harden Baylor and, and Belton, and many of our higher education schools, oftentimes you think that Ivy League, they have these 
Christian roots. Why? Because the people who founded them wanted to bless our world and make it better through education. Many people in our church and our community do foster care, taking care of of children who are vulnerable. Who established those foster care agencies? It was Christians. They have Christian foundation. That should encourage you. They exist because Christendom, this culture of Christianity, existed in our society. And the scary thing for me right now is Christendom that provided all that is a thing that's being stripped away right now. I don't tell you that so you can say, well, everyone's done it all. No more hospitals to make, no more schools to establish, no more foster care agencies that need to be done. I'm I'm not saying that to, to relieve you of that responsibility. But what I'm trying to encourage you of is this long tradition of Christians who see a need and they take responsibility for it. That's what God is calling us to do. That's what God is calling us to be. And guys, I cannot wait for the future. Because I just imagine out of this church plant, out of Christ Community Church, the believers in our midst finding needs in our community and saying, I've got a Jesus for that. I've got compassion for that. And I'm going to meet that need. And James is saying that true Faith and true worship and true religion is seeing the need that's out there, seeing the vulnerability of people, seeing the brokenness of people, and saying, I'm going to go. And I'm going to meet that need. That's what Christ is calling us to do and be as a church, that our church and our faith is not just a philosophy, it's not just a list of doctrines. Our faith is expressed in doing good and living out what God has called us to be and do. As we are called to be disciples of the way, to follow Jesus wherever he may go. So let us be a holy and a humble people, a people who look at the book and be a people who worship with their walk. Let's stand and pray.